We are going to be talking this afternoon about Job chapters 8 to 10, Bildad's first speech and Job's response to it. Um, But I'd like to read uh, chapter 10, the whole of chapter 10. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man, that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand? Your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor and your care has preserved my spirit. And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. We're going to begin by spending just a few minutes talking about Bildad's speech in chapter 8. And we're going to then spend the majority of our time on chapters 9 and 10. Bildad's speech is a short speech, but it's also, I think, a very simple speech, not a speech that's difficult for us to understand And um, the message to Job is also a very simple message. In fact, I think we can sum this message of Bildad to Job up in a few words. First, God is righteous and does not pervert judgment. Therefore, you and your children must have sinned. That's the kind of the sum total of Bildad's speech to Job. But let's take the time to look at a few of the details of that speech. First of all, 
in verse 2, uh, Bildad says to Job, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? In other words, uh, Bildad is saying to Job, This is all hot air. You have said nothing worthwhile. No one needs really to listen to you. Uh, the answer to your problem is a very plain and simple answer. And I can explain it to you in a few words. So that's the first thing he says. Then he says, and here we have the basic premise of his speech. God does not pervert judgment. Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? And he's defending, of course, the righteousness of God there. And he's speaking truth by these rhetorical questions that he asks Job. But then he draws the conclusion that we find in verses 4 to 7. And his conclusion is, if your sons have sinned against them, he has cast them away for their transgressions. Your sons have died, well, that was because of their transgressions. And then with regard to yourself, in verses 5 to 7, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, there's still time for you, your sons have perished, but there's still time for you, if you would seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. In other words, confess your sin, do what is right, make your supplication before the Lord, and he will make you prosper. In verses 8 to 10 then, Bildad says, and this is not just what I teach. In fact, what I teach is really uh, relatively insignificant. He says in verse 9, we, and he includes in that Job and himself and the other friends as well, I think, we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. He says, our lives have been too short for us to know much of anything, and so you don't have to believe my words. You shouldn't believe my words. Refer to ancient times, to people of the past, and they'll tell you the same thing I'm telling you. Verse 8, for inquire, please, of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. And again in verse 10, will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? They'll say the same thing, Bildad is saying to Job, that I've said. And these were very wise men. These are men who understood these things and had the experience and the opportunity to learn about these things and to speak wisely concerning them. So if you don't want to believe me, refer to the fathers. And then in verses 11 and following, he uses an extended metaphor concerning the uh, papyrus reed. And of course, the papyrus reed is a, a reed that grows in very marshy ground. It needs a lot of water, therefore. And if it doesn't have water, it perishes. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water, and what happens if it doesn't have water while it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So it dies very quickly, quick, more quickly than any other plant if it's deprived of water. And he says, well, this is what the wicked are like. Verse 13, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust 
is a spider's web. And I think there again he's using, uh, extending his metaphor a little bit or going to a somewhat different metaphor and he's saying their confidence is as frail as a spider's web. If they uh, uh, lean on, if you lean on a spider's web, that web is certainly going to fail, break, and you're going to fall. And another metaphor in verse 15, he leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. Build that may mean that this is a very weakly built house and that if a man leans against the house, the house will simply fall over. And it's not, therefore, a place where, that he should put confidence in. But he may also be talking about a man putting confidence in his substance, in his wealth. And he holds fast then to that wealth, but that wealth does not endure. Ultimately, it's not a firm ground for confidence. And if he leans on that kind of wealth, he will also perish quickly. And then I think he goes back to the metaphor of the papyrus reed in verses 16 and following. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. Here you have the idea of a plant growing quickly in the sun, its branches spreading out through the garden, its roots wrapping around the rock heap. And I think the idea here is that the soil is rocky and not very um, good for the plant. And so the plant spreads out its roots all over the place and and through the stones of the rock heap and so on. But uh, because it's so poorly uh, placed, has such poor soil from which to draw its nourishment, he's quickly destroyed from his place. His place denies him, saying, I have not seen you, and others take his place. Verse 19, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. So this is what the wicked are like, he says. They perish quickly under the fierce uh, sun of the judgment of God. And finally, he concludes by saying, Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. Here's the basic, the simple truth. God does not cast away the blameless. He does not uphold the evildoers. He will fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing if you're, you are righteous. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Turn to righteousness, he says, and everything will be fine. And even your enemies will perish from your presence. So it's a very simple, very basic message. And he speaks in this message two truths, two things that we know from the rest of the scriptures. First, God does not pervert judgment. God is righteous he never does anything that is unrighteous. And secondly, God blesses the upright and he brings his judgment on the wicked. That's also a plain scriptural teaching. So what's the problem then with Bildad's message to Job? Well, I think the problem is that that's the limit of Bildad's theology. He, he cannot imagine anything beyond this that would apply to Job's situation. He, he puts God into the box of his own mind because he cannot comprehend a righteousness in God 
that makes such suffering for an innocent man, if Job is really innocent. In his mind, it's impossible that Job is innocent because God is not unrighteous. And a righteous God would never do such things to one who was innocent and who was righteous. So his theology is a very limited theology, and because his theology is a very limited theology, he sets up really a graven image. This is not God as he is. This is God according to the imagination of Bildad, a not very wise man. So that's his first problem. He limits God. And his second problem, of course, is that he shows no compassion. Just like Eliphaz, he shows no compassion to Job. That verse 4 of this chapter, I think it's verse 4, yes, is cruel in the extreme. If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgressions. His sons died in their transgressions, he says. And this is the consequence of his theology. They died. They died uh, catastrophically. It has to be because God was angry with them. They died in their sins. God cast them away for that, their transgression. And, you, and basically he says to Job, and you'd better watch out because he'll do the same to you if you don't quickly turn to God and make your supplication to him. So I think what we see here in Bildad's speech to Job is a kind of impatience with Job. He says to Job, you're full of words. And you're full of complaints. As if this is a very complicated and difficult matter. And it's not. It's a very easy thing. That's why his speech is so short. It doesn't take a long time to explain God to Job. In the, in the theology of Bildad. He's, Job is, in Bildad's mind, fretting about a misery to which there is a very simple solution. Seek God. Make your supplication to Him. And we can imagine him being impatient not only with Job, but looking back to that rather lengthy speech of Eliphaz in the earlier chapters, of the book, we can imagine him being somewhat impatient with Aliphaz too. You go on about this and that, you, you have to talk for two chapters in order to explain this sim- simple kind of thing to uh, Job. It's not as difficult as you're making it. This is a very simple matter. Job has sinned, and he's suffering the judgment that's due to him for his sins. So I think that's, that's basically what Bildad has to say. And it's very far off the mark. Let's turn then to Job's speech in response to this. And that speech is found, of course, in chapters 9 and 10. And we can divide that speech into essentially two parts. In chapter 9, Job talks about God to his friends. And in chapter 10, Job talks to God. That's the basic division that we have here. 
And the sum of Job's message is a little bit more complicated than the sum of Bildad's message. First, notice that Job begins by saying to Bildad, I know that what you say is true. Verse 2, truly, I know it is so. He says, I I understand these things as well as you. I understand that God does not pervert justice. And I understand that God judges the wicked and blesses the righteous. I, I know these things. That's not my difficulty, he says. My difficulty comes in here. How can a man be righteous before God? That's Job's problem. He says, I know God blesses the righteous, but how can he be righteous before God? And he, he says throughout this speech a number of times, I'm a righteous man. Look at verse 21, for example, of chapter 9. I am blameless, Job says. Or at chapter 10, verse 7. You know, talking to God, that I am not wicked. So Job is saying to Bildad, I'm a righteous man. And yet, God treats me like an enemy. Your theology isn't taking into account my situation. How then, he says to Bildad, can I be righteous? And to his friends as well. How can I be righteous? I am righteous, and yet God treats me like the wicked. Now I think, before we start to condemn Job and say, well, that's obviously foolishness on on Job's part, let's understand this, that Job knows the way of salvation. He has made that very clear in his past speech. He said to Eliphaz at the end of chapter 7, or he said to God at the end of chapter 7, why then do you not pardon my iniquity and take away my, or pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job understands the way of salvation. And what Job is saying here to Bildad then is, I followed that way. I've confessed my transgressions and I've expected to receive from God the assurance of forgiveness. I've expected to be justified before him. And what has happened instead? He treats me like one who is wicked. I have not found that righteousness that I sought. I wanted it. I sought it in the way that God laid out before me. I sought it by faith. I I offered the sacrifices. I covered myself with the blood of atonement. I cleansed myself from my sins by the ceremonies of the law. And I didn't do it just as an external exercise. I did it in full faith in the promises of God. And yet, and yet I'm not righteous before him. He's still treating me like one who is wicked. How do you explain that? And you see, he's continuing even where he left off in chapter 7 when he said to 
at the end of chapter 7, why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? It's almost as if he's, in a way, ignoring what Bildad says and, and picking up right where he left off there. Why then do you not pardon my transgression? How can a man be righteous before God? Here's, here's his problem. He knows how to obtain pardon, but it hasn't been granted him, or at least he feels that it hasn't been granted him. That's how deep his trouble is, people of God. There's no righteousness for him before God, even though he has sought God's pardon, God's righteousness, in the way that God has taught him. And so, he says, I need to contend with God. Verse 3, if one wished to contend with him. So Job then, in the rest of this chapter, basically imagines himself in court with God, and he and God battling it out. Job seeking to prove his righteousness before God, to say, this is what you told me, this is how, this is the way of salvation you showed me, this is my justification, and yet you are treating me like a wicked man. Why? And looking for God to answer him. And so we have Job then, in all the following verses, imagining what's going to happen in this courtroom scene. And what he says throughout the whole thing is, here, it's hopeless. That's basically what he's saying throughout this whole chapter. It's hopeless. If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one of a thousand. And so, I don't know exactly what Job was thinking about. One of a thousand what? Questions, accusations, court cases. He could have been thinking about any number of things, though it's interesting to um, think in this connection, in connection with Job's statement here about all those questions that God asked Job at the end of the book, the thousand questions or so that God answered or asked Job when he spoke to him from the whirlwind. But Job is saying here, isn't he, whatever it is that God brings up, I can't hope to answer. I couldn't answer him one time out of a thousand. If it's a thousand accusations, I couldn't even justify myself with regard to one of those accusations. If it's a thousand questions, I couldn't answer one of the thousand questions. If he brings me a, 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 into court a thousand times, I couldn't hope to win even one time out of all those thousand court cases. And why? Because God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Notice there, he doesn't appeal to the righteousness of God. He talks about God's strength and his wisdom. And what he's saying is, God's too wise, too clever, if you want to use that word, too clever to be caught by me, and too strong for me to overcome him. Who 
who has hardened himself against him and prospered. And he doesn't mean hardened himself in sin and prospered. He means who has strengthened himself, who has girded up his loins against God and exerted all his strength against God and prospered. It's impossible, he says, that anyone should prosper against this God. Not because he's righteous, but because he's simply too strong. His strength is overwhelming. And and so he says in the next verses, verses 5 to 10, basically, uh, look at his mighty deeds. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. And and I think it's interesting to look at the kinds of works of God that Job refers to. He talks about catastrophic, destructive works of God first, removing mountains and overturning them, shaking the earth and making its pillars tremble, commanding the sun so that it does not rise, sealing off the stars so that they do not give their light. These are catastrophic kinds of things, destructive kinds of works. And then in the second place, he he looks at works of God which are distant from man. Not works of God that you see on earth, but works of God in the heavens. He spreads out the heavens, he treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades in the chambers of the south. He does all these immensely destructive works, and he does all these works that are far beyond the reach, and therefore far beyond the understanding of man. They're they're wonders. That is, in a very real sense, that word has to be taken as mysteries here, mysteries which cannot be penetrated by man's poor mind. His strength, as revealed in the works of his hands in creation, is simply overpowering strength. Who can hope to contend with such strength as his? And then in verses 11 and, uh, and, and following, he says, if he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. He's, he's too elusive for me. I want to uh, come into court with him, but even when he's close by me, when he passes close by me, I can't see him. I can't ever perceive him, even when he's nearby. And if he takes away something, I can't hinder him, and no man can hinder him. No one's able to say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. He punishes the wicked, and the the allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. There's an end to man before God. God is simply greater than man can cope with. That's what he's saying here. God is greater than man can cope with. And then in verses 14 and following, he says, 
Let's just imagine now for a moment that I were in court with God and I were pleading my case. What would happen? How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. So he says, here we are in court, I'm righteous, and I, I can't answer him. I don't, I don't have anything to say. I would beg mercy of my judge. It's not mercy I want, it's justice I want. But I would end up begging for mercy because I wouldn't know how to answer him. I wouldn't know what to say. And if I did call on him and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that he is listening to my voice. I'm too little, too insignificant in the face of such a God. And besides that, not only that, he's crushing me right now with a tempest. And he multiplies my wounds without cause. So here I am in court and he's already pouring out judgment and anger on me. He's already afflicting me with all his wounds. He won't even allow me to catch my breath, but he fills me with bitterness. I don't even have time to gather my words together because I'm so crushed by his power. If it's a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And even if it's a matter of justice, how can I expect to have a day in court with him? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. No matter what I said, my own mouth would condemn me because I'm simply too weak, too feeble, too crushed by this mighty God to justify myself before him. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. He's basically saying, I I couldn't succeed even if I had the opportunity. And he concludes then this part of his speech by saying, it's all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. He treats the blameless just the same as the wicked. It's all one thing. There's no difference. And I know it from my own experience. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. There I think Job accused God wrongly. I think that's sin. He laughs at the plight of the innocent. Job doesn't know that. Job doesn't know that. And he doesn't, of course. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, He said, look around you at the earth. It's governed by the wicked, not by the righteous. And he's put judges in place to restrain wickedness and to deal with the wickedness of the earth, but then he covers their faces so that they can't see it. If it is not he, who else could it be? God does not allow the judges to deal with the wickedness of the earth. He's the sovereign Lord over all things. He's the one who governs all things. If it is not he, who else could it be? So my days are swifter 
than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. He's perishing under the wrath and strength of this God with whom he cannot cope and to whom he cannot give an answer. In the rest of the chapter then, I think he considers various possible ways of escaping from this situation. These are, um, it's important, I think, to understand that that's what he's doing. He's, he's considering what he might do since he can't win in this court case, what other possibilities are open to him. So the first possibility he considers is in verses 27 to 29. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face, and wear a smile. So he says, I'll just forget it and go on and and put on a smile as if nothing has happened. But he says, that doesn't work. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. Those sufferings are still looming there in the background. And I know that those sufferings mean that you will not hold me innocent. You'll continue to be against me. You'll continue to uh, show your anger to me and deal with me as the wicked. If I'm condemned before you, why should I labor in vain? That is, why should I put on a a smiling face if I still stand condemned? That does me no good whatsoever. It's a way that sometimes men deal with suffering, isn't it? They put on a smiling face. They say, I'll just forget my complaint. I don't understand it. I don't understand the God who has done this to me, but I'll just wear a smile. Job says, well, I can't find any peace that way because that leaves my sufferings unexplained and you still not holding me innocent. So he considers in verses 30 and 31, A second possibility. I'll cleanse myself, he says. I'll wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap. That is, he'll make himself as clean as possible. And he's talking about spiritual cleansing under these figures, of course. He says, I'll I'll put off my sins then. And what's his answer there? You will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. I'll still be guilty in your presence. There will be no relief for me in that way. He is not a man as I am, verse 32, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. And then the third possibility, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. There's the third possibility. He wonders if there might be someone who can come between him and God and lay his hand on them both. And I think he's not talking here about the mediatorial work that's implied in the atoning sacrifice and so on. 
That's not the point. The mediatorial work is accomplished. Job has already taken refuge in the mediatorial work, but God is still condemning him. So he's looking for a mediator who can lay his hand not only on Job, but also on God, who's therefore stronger than Job, who can accomplish what Job can't do for himself. And he says, no, there's, there's no such mediator either. And so he ends, let him take his rod away from me. And here's his fourth possibility. Do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. He says, if he would just stop the afflictions, if he would take his rod away and the terror of his judgment and his presence, then I'd be able to stand up. Then I wouldn't be afraid of him anymore. I could deal with this whole problem, but it is not so with me. His rod is still upon me. A vain hope, of course, but a desperate man will take refuge in vain hopes. So he considers all those possibilities and he rejects them and he says, I can't imagine winning any kind of contest with God in court. Even if I were righteous, I could not imagine winning. His strength would simply crush me completely. We come then to chapter 10 and Job's address to God himself. He says in verse 2, I will say to God, And what Job does here in this chapter then is as he addresses God, he asks a series of questions and um, these questions he asks of God, really. And they come down to essentially all the questions, why are you doing this? I don't understand. Why are you doing it? So he says to God, I will say to God, verse 2, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And then he begins to consider the possibilities. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress? That you despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Is, is this the explanation for the way you deal with a righteous man? That you love oppression? That you smile on the wicked? And despise the work of your own hands? Me? A bold question to ask of God. But the next one is even more bold. Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as man sees? Do you have man's limited sight? Or verse 5, do you have man's limited lifespan? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? Do you have limited time, as it were, or limited ability to see that you bring these afflictions upon me in this way, that you seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Are 
Are you in a hurry to get the job done? And searching out sin and dealing with sin, even though you may not be sure that you have found it, in fact, that you know that I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. So he considers this possibility that God's uh, ability to judge righteously is limited, like the ability of a man. And he says, but not so limited that anyone can deliver from your hand. These are agonized questions, very troubled questions that Job is asking here. The third question is is, uh, not really put in the form of a question, but really behind it is a question. And that question is, why would you destroy your own intricate and beautiful creation? That's in verses 8 to 12. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. Think of Psalm 139 in that connection. Yet you would destroy me. That's a strange thing for you to do to destroy what you have so carefully and skillfully made. Remember, I pray you, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me to dust again? Did you not, and he's talking here about his creation, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? This is your creative work, the beauty and wonder of your creative work. So why are you trying to destroy it now? I don't understand. You have granted me life and favor since the time that you created me. You have given me many good things. Your care has preserved my spirit. Are you now going back on all that you have done through all of my life up to this point? Do you not care about the work of your own hands? In verses 13 to 15, yet another question, I think, here. And that question is, why do you deal with the righteous like the wicked? He says, you you hid this from me. I didn't know this. Now I know it, but I didn't know it before. These things you have hidden in your heart, I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me. Yeah, that is, you're watching me if I sin. And you won't acquit me of my iniquity. I've learned that now. You won't acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. Yes, yes indeed, I understand that. That's righteousness. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. So you're always watching me. And if I'm wicked, yes, woe comes. And if I'm righteous, still I'm full of disgrace and misery. If my head is exalted, and I think he simply means if I lift my head off the ground for a moment, then you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You crush me again. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes in war are ever with me. He's hopeless. He's despairing of finding any favor in the 
presence of God. And so his final question in verses 18 to 19, why did you not simply cause me to die at birth? Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Again, that longing for death. And then finally, in verses 20 to 22, I'm perishing in darkness. I'm going to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, the place from which I shall not return. It's a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order. And even the light in that place is darkness. I'm going down to darkness and blackness forever under the exercise of your strength. And he comes back again to where he had ended with his response to Eliphaz in chapter 7. Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort. Why can't you just leave me alone for a little while before I go to the land of darkness? He has no hope then of righteousness before God. No hope anywhere in the world. He's utterly cast down. And he's utterly cast down because God is against him. God has become his enemy. And he does not know why. So Job is dealing here, people of God, with that age-old question. If God is good and righteous, why does he permit so much suffering? But what we have to see in Job is that that question is even more difficult for Job than it is for most. And it's more difficult for Job, first of all, because for Job the question is, why not, why does he permit so much suffering? But for Job the question is, why does he do it? He understands the sovereignty of God in his suffering. He understands that it's not simply a matter of permission, that it's actually God's hand that's against him and pressing him down and destroying him. It's not as if God has withdrawn and given Satan a moment to squeeze in and, and bring some terrible affliction on Job, that God has permitted Satan to do this. No, it's God himself who's doing it. And the other reason the question is so hard for Job is that he's a righteous man. Not righteous in himself. He's not talking about self-righteousness. He's righteous in Christ. He's righteous in the blood of atonement. He's taken refuge there. He's sought his help and confidence in God. He's served God with all his heart and mind and soul. And what is the result? That God crushes him. I'm perishing, he says, in darkness. 
understand. Where is he? That he cannot forgive my sins. Who is he? That he cannot deal mercifully with a righteous man. That's Job's agony. It's it's there, people of God, that we have to find the answer to the tremendous difficulties that we see throughout this book of Job. It's not an easy thing for a righteous man, a man who has taken refuge in the righteousness of Christ, to suffer as Job did and to have to ask of God why to seek some understanding of the pain and the grief and the trouble that God's hand brings into innocent lives lives innocent in Christ we can understand that agony of Job, then I think we can begin to understand even a little bit for ourselves what it means to suffer as Christians and as godly people here in the world and why godly people sometimes find it so difficult to deal with the heavy hand of God upon them. May God bless us with his word.